This is The Professor's Corner, a McGuire Woods series exploring business and legal issues prevalent in today's private equity industry. Tune in with McGuire Woods partner Jeff Cockrell as he and specialists share real-world insight to help enhance your knowledge. Hello, this is Jeff Cockrell. Uh, thank you, everyone, for joining us for another episode of our Corner Series, where we bring together dealmakers, practitioners, and investors, uh, in, in particular in healthcare investing, uh, and explore some of the more nuanced elements of healthcare investing. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by my partner, Mark Friedlander. He's the chair of our bankruptcy group here at McGuire Woods. And I spend a lot of time with Mark uh, looking at distressed assets for investment or uh, at times dealing with distressed portfolio companies of private equity fund investors uh, as issues do come up. Mark, if you could introduce yourself a little bit and then what we're going to be talking about is uh, some of the pitfalls to avoid uh, if you're with a company that is experiencing some distress. Sure. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, And again, my name is Mark Friedlander and I'm a partner with Jeff at McGuire Woods. What we're going to do today, in large part, is review in the first instance a variety of ways that private equity funds as sponsors can get themselves in trouble where there are financially troubled portfolio companies. And what we'll discuss is a whole list of items where bad things have happened to sponsors in the past. That doesn't mean that every time a portfolio company runs into trouble, that a sponsor should expect to have this list of issues, but they all are potential issues and they're all real life situations and not hypothetical what ifs and maybes. We've lived through each and every one of the items that we're going to discuss today. And Mark, this will be helpful because the operating thesis for most investors is my fund has made an investment into the securities of a limited partnership or a limited liability company or corporation And by law, the obligations of that company are not the obligations of me, but there are limits uh, to that idea that we'd like to explore. Right. So there are both statutory and common law approaches by parties involved, let me just say creditors, of a financially troubled portfolio company where they or a fiduciary, a bankruptcy trustee, a state or federal court receiver, all have the ability to pursue claims potentially against a sponsor. So they sound in both statute in some instances and in other instances in common law. It doesn't mean that they are common, but things are talked about all the time and in the right set of circumstances can actually create liability on the part of a sponsor. So, Mark, uh, against that backdrop, maybe we could walk through some of the fact patterns that create the most sources of potential liability. Sure. And obviously, every set of circumstances is somewhat different. But nevertheless, there, there is a common theme that we see um, in troubled portfolio companies where sponsors could end up having potential claims asserted against them or difficulties and pretty strong inquiries made of them. And among those are a hold co opco structure where the hold co doesn't have assets and it's just purely a hold co. Also, most often in circumstances where troubles really arise, the opco is highly leveraged. In many instances, at least some of the debt of the opco is held by the sponsor or an affiliate of the sponsor. 
Likewise, in many of these situations, there are management agreements or other forms of arrangements where the sponsor or an affiliate is involved in some form of managerial role um, with respect to the opco. And likewise, most often there's balance sheet balance sheet management on an active level by the sponsor of its operating company. Then I would say another indication of potential problems is when the window of hold for the sponsor really helps drive the strategies of the opco. And finally, and again, these are by no means an exhaustive list. It's just a, a common set of circumstances where um, the sponsor is actively involved in the governance of the opco. An active involvement for many of these items will be key, not occasionally, not oversight. Those are clearly within parameters that don't create issues. But the more active a sponsor becomes in the day-in, day-out management and activities of the opco, um, the more potential liability that could be created when the opco runs into financial problems. So, Mark, those uh, the things that can be the basic fact pattern where exposure of the sponsor can be contemplated, those are basically present in every deal. That kind of control, that kind right. of structure, kind of the operational decision-making falling into significantly the hands of the sponsor, an identifiable time frame for entry and exit of the platform. Those are present pretty much every time. So what are some of the more specific elements that can uh, create some, some harder liability? Sure. So, and some of these are tied to intent and others really don't have anything to do with intent. And, and among the most common are exposure by way of example to preference. And we'll talk briefly about each of these, but in preference situation, preference most often occurs when an opco ends up uh, subject to bankruptcy protection, but there are likewise some states that also have preference um, statutes. But the bankruptcy code has a very specific statute that, for all intents and purposes, it's the purpose of a preference statute is to see to it that similarly situated creditors are treated in a similar and fair manner, and that one or more don't take advantage of a situation. So the general framework for preference exposure is where there's antecedent debt and a transferee, meaning in this particular instance, the sponsor um, receives on account of that antecedent debt um, prior to a bankruptcy filing more than it would receive had there been a hypothetical Chapter 7 bankruptcy filing. And many times it relates to payments. In some instances, it relates to the taking of collateral where it didn't otherwise exist. And in a bankruptcy scenario, there's a one-year look-back period where if these transfers occurred within a year prior to a bankruptcy filing, the sponsor could be subject to liability. That differs than other types of creditors who aren't what are referred to as insiders or closely related parties to um, to the OPCO. The one-year period relates to those and only those who are considered insiders or parties that are very close to the OPCO um, by way of relationship. The, the private equity fund who's got a kind of a running management fee needs right. to be careful that 
dollars that they've received through that uh, fee arrangement or basically otherwise, uh, the dollars that they've uh, received during that look back period are potentially subject to recall for the benefit of the other creditors, that, that being one scenario. And then another one that we encounter in middle market deals fairly regularly is there might be uh, capital providers for a deal that are wearing both debt and equity hats. So they're put mm-hmm. they're a significant equity investor, maybe the sole, but also are a significant participant in, say, the mezzanine or other uh, debt apparatus of the company. Right. So in these situations, secured debt and unsecured debt have different profiles for for preference actions. So in large part, but not entirely, we're talking about unsecured claims, claims not that are not collateralized, management fees, unsecured mezzanine loans, those types of repayments in a one-year period prior to a bankruptcy filing could be subject to preference clawback in a bankruptcy case. And we're not talking about untoward activities where the sponsor or the lender is kind of uh, shoveling available assets uh, into their own pockets, but payments that are made fairly in the ordinary course pursuant to scheduled payments, uh, scheduled debt uh, service, um, but all of those just falling within that one-year period can be a, a significant source of exposure to those parties. In part, that's correct, yes. So there are certain defenses to preference actions, so payments that are really and truly are ordinary course type payments are subject to a defense as it relates to a preference action. But where payments are are typically made, and as a company runs into more and more problems, those payments are slow paid, and they accumulate for a period of time and then are caught up by way of example. Those are the instances where preference exposure um, really is at its greatest. Mark, what are some of the other categories of exposure that a sponsor could experience? Sure. Similarly, and they kind of go hand in hand, um, there's preference exposure, as I just mentioned, and likewise, fraudulent conveyance exposure. That exposure um, is exposure that's statutory under the bankruptcy code. And likewise, just about every state in the country also has um, fraudulent conveyance statutes as well. So Fraudulent conveyance is a way of protecting creditors from two real instances. In the first instance, where fraudulent conduct, truly fraudulent conduct has occurred, there's a way to claw back money in those instances. But likewise, even where there's no intent, if there's basically unequal value um, that has been transferred so that the value of services doesn't equate to that the payments that are received, Or by way of example, a guarantee where this guarantor gets no real value at all for providing the guarantee or other different types of payments in in a variety of different instances, notwithstanding intent, there can still be fraudulent conveyance exposure um, in the event that there isn't a transfer of reasonably equivalent value. And likewise, the transferor was either insolvent or had unreasonably small capital at the time the transfer was made. And again, that can occur either in a bankruptcy context or outside of a bankruptcy context. The other thing that I would just note is that in many instances, if a sponsor were subject to claims for a preference or potentially claims for fraudulent conveyance, it's not uncommon for breach of duty claims, which we'll also discuss, to be brought at the same time so that 
in any number of instances that we've seen, most often claims against insiders or sponsors relating to a financially troubled portfolio company come in sets. It's not just a single claim. It's a multitude of different claims essentially relating to the same conduct, though, so that there are alternative theories of recovery. Preference may be more limited. Fraudulent conveyance exposure could be much greater. By way of example, fraudulent conveyance exposure does not have the same types of defenses that a preference action may have. So ordinary course of business, which I mentioned to you, Jeff, is not a defense to a fraudulent conveyance action. And even more scary for a sponsor is that a look-back period for fraudulent conveyance can be anywhere from two to potentially four years, as opposed to one year in the instance of a preference. So transactions between affiliated a sponsor and its affiliated portfolio company really are subject to potentially far look back if the portfolio company becomes financially troubled. And I would think that the whole idea of whether or not the transfer was of uh, equivalent value could look different with the benefit of hindsight. If you've got a troubled, yeah. if you've got a troubled, troubled company that has an asset that, that they would greatly appreciate the liquidity that that asset could bring. Uh, you have a, a purchaser, maybe an affiliated purchaser, or somehow connected to the company, and what feels equivalent at the moment of the transaction, given uh, unforeseen future in both the existing company and maybe even the asset that's being purchased. Uh, that can all look very different if the purchased asset is immediately very valuable or very quickly becomes valuable. I think there's a, a healthy amount of exposure that you have to be cognizant of in that context. Yeah, Jeff, without question, that's the case. And when litigation relating to these types of claims arises, um, the litigant, the plaintiff, is always really has the benefit of, of hindsight and looking in the rearview mirror so that um, it's super important for a fund to make sure that what it's doing at a point in time of a transaction or a transfer is well documented, that valuation work is done then, um, that we rely upon the opinions of experts by way of example. And I know that that can become expensive, but if there are concerns about survivability and about potential exposure, the more that we can rely upon outside third-party valuation and document what we're doing in very significant manner, the better our defenses would be in the future. And I think some of the takeaway on that is uh, if you're a sponsor that owns a, a distressed company, you need to be careful with money and things leaving that company, uh, both in, in terms of kind of the timing of when that's happening, the nature in which it's happening and the value and, and recognize that uh, all of those uh, transfers out uh, will be looked at after the fact with perhaps uh, different eyes. Without question, that's the case. And I would also say there's some differentiation between transfers and payments that are made to the sponsor or entities affiliated with the sponsor, and there are completely and totally independent third parties. So the, the level of scrutiny and the period of investigation or look-back period, the scrutiny is more intense and likewise, the look-back period is longer when these things occur with affiliated parties. We've talked a little bit about kind of the timing of payments on account of debt that you have to be careful uh, as it relates to 
preference exposure, but what about the broader topic of if, if there's a sponsor that is a lender to this company, the risk that the, the rights and preferences that they as a lender in general could be subordinated to other uh, creditors? Sure. So under the bankruptcy code, just like there are provisions for recovery under preference and fraudulent conveyance, there likewise is a much shorter and less detailed provision relating to equitable subordination of debt. And it only relates to debt. It doesn't relate to equity. But ostensibly, a court at its discretion has the ability to subordinate the debt of a sponsor or a sponsor's affiliate to recoveries of others where there's inequitable conduct of that sponsor or its affiliated lender um, that results in harm to creditors or the underlying enterprise. And again, this is very much discretionary on the part of the court. It's absolutely positively an extraordinary remedy. You hear people talk about equitable subordination a lot in my world when there is a financially troubled portfolio company and the sponsor is a lender. But it really does take pretty extraordinary set of circumstances before the debt of that insider will be or a sponsor would actually be equitably subordinated. You talk about inequitable conduct, that that's the catalyst for that exposure. Can you describe some of the fact patterns that realistically could kind of create that exposure? Sure. The more control that a sponsor exercises over a financially troubled portfolio company, the worse things get. And likewise, um, where by way of example, the sponsor influences decisions about how their debt or their affiliate's debt is treated vis-a-vis other creditors, the more likely it is that equitable subordination claims could come about. So in, in large part, but not entirely, it really and truly does relate to the exercise of control by the sponsor or its affiliate over its financially troubled portfolio company in terms of how that debt is treated. But I have to assume that mere levers of control don't immediately generate that because a lot of sponsors that are wearing uh, kind of both of those hats that are take a, a, a middle market or lower middle market healthcare transaction where the capital, capital is being provided by, say, one or more uh, SBIC investors that are investing collectively all of the equity and also maybe uh, providing all of the debt. They're still going to have that kind of control. So control would seem like a catalyst, uh, but does it require more kind of specific conduct that, that, that generates the harm? Sure. So I'll give you an example, and this is something of an extreme example, but where the sponsor were to cause its portfolio company to default so that the sponsor has the ability default on on a loan so that the sponsor has the ability to accelerate its loan and accelerate collection activities where otherwise not declaring that default or creating a default that didn't otherwise exist would allow the company to continue that would be an example of conduct that would be an inequitable which would almost certainly give rise to potential um, equitable subordination claims, where the sponsor is really pushing 
its portfolio company not to pay certain things so that instead debt payments can be made. That could be another example, depending upon how actively involved that sponsor is in the day-in, day-out management of what gets paid and what doesn't get paid. Another time that I've heard it kind of kicked around, I'm not sure how viable the theory would be, but uh, when you have lenders that are saying no to different pathways that they have veto rights over and foreclosing potential kind of escape or betterment pathways, it's often asserted by other investors that the lender needs to be careful in, in how they're exerting that control through kind of negative veto rights. If they're foreclosing possible escape routes, they do so at their, at their peril. So very fact-intensive, um, and it becomes difficult for a sponsor because they're wearing different hats. So by way of example, where a sponsor or a sponsor's affiliate is a lender, and likewise, the sponsor sits on the board of directors, it's sometimes difficult to differentiate between when that lender is wearing its lender's hat. And in those instances, a lender certainly has a veto right over things that it doesn't believe are in its best interest. But likewise, that becomes increasingly difficult if that same lender also has representatives on the board. When it wears the board hat, it has an obligation to the enterprise. And where it's wearing its lender hat, it only needs to be concerned about its its own interests and exclusively its own interests. So those situations become very difficult. I often hear these uh, theories in the in the heat of a moment tossed around with the idea of a warning to the different participants to be careful how they conduct themselves, to be careful uh, what kind of leverage they put uh, on different parties. How often do you see these ki- types of claims actually materialize into uh, point-blank legal claims? Most often it happens when a portfolio company melts down. It's talked about a lot. It's it's actually a great point of leverage for creditors to talk about and maybe even to file a complaint initially because when a sponsor has a portfolio company that runs into issues, there's always some level of vulnerability. People can always look back. People can always question certain decisions. So there's a level of vulnerability that exists in almost every instance where there is a financially troubled um, portfolio company. But where that exposure really and truly exists is not very often, and you almost know it when you see it, unless that exposure purely relates to very technical statutory type of potential recoveries. But when we start to talk about inequitable conduct, or likewise, if we talk about the recharacterization of debt, which we'll talk about in a moment, um, or breach of duty claims, any of those types of things are all very fact-intensive. And while those issues can be raised in a multitude of circumstances, their underlying success is not very common. The litigation is threatened on a regular basis. It's brought on a less frequent basis because obviously there's a cost to litigation. But where recoveries occur is not very often. And in fairness, in almost every one of these circumstances, where litigation is brought, they're ultimately settled. Sometimes they're settled for a lot of money. Other times they're settled for very nominal amounts. But it's a rare instance where these matters are litigated to fruition. Mark, we usually try to keep these uh, podcast sessions to about 20 minutes. 
I know we have some more topics to, to cover. We've been slowly ratcheting up the nature of the claims, and the next ones we're going to talk about are going to be increasing from where we started. But why don't we uh, call it a break for there, and we'll, we'll pick this up with the next episode. But thank you, everyone, for joining. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this installment of The Professor's Corner. To learn more about today's discussion, please email host Jeff Cockrell at gcockrell at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This series was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this series, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this installment. The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This series should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action.